special treat today. Last week, we loved hearing from Amy Donaldson Brass and how she, as a professional sports writer, found her voice. This week, another fantastic story treat, Professor Lynn McNeil from Utah State University's Folklore Department. Lynn is from Northern California. She's a folklorist now, teaching at Utah State University, and she specializes in digital culture, legend, and belief. She co-directs the Digital Folklore Project, and last year she gave a TEDx talk. She has all kinds of credentials. She's an author of Folklore Rules, a textbook, and one of the top professors there at the university focusing on folklore with the, the students who are studying that area. She was my thesis professor, a really, really impressive woman. So I'm excited to bring her on and have her give you some fantastic insights into story. In fact, one of the things that I'm really excited about in this interview is that we discuss a little bit about how when we come to realize that our stories are created by a set of values and parameters that our own cultures define for us, right? we come to recognize that those stories are created by other people and belief systems and and they're actually fluid they can be reframed and that also we get to learn by looking at other valid ways of living other people's cultures you know there are a hundred ways to live right and Linda and I talk about this understanding this concept provides insights into other ways of interpreting and writing our own stories for self-definition. So this week, with the honor of speaking with this professional folklore academic, we get to get some more insights into how our stories are our lives in language. Let's get right into it. Let's talk to Lynn and see what she has to say. Len McNeil, welcome to the Love Your Story podcast. Why, thank you, Lori. I'm very happy to be here. I'm really excited to have her on the show today because her understanding of folklore and story takes it to a whole different level. I'm going to leave most of the talking up to you, Lynn, but want to start out with, you know, let's talk about some basics. You're a folklore academic. That means you spend your whole life studying stories and legend and can you tell the listeners you know why do stories matter from your perspective i think i like that you point out that i'm a folklore academic because in addition to that i'm also as you know being a folklore academic yourself a member of the folk and so there's sort of this double layer of vision that folklorists get to have and i think people in other academic disciplines probably have this psychology is one i always think of when i think about this but it's this sense that you are observing what you're doing as you're doing it. So when you're a folklorist, you don't get to step out of being the folk in order to be the folklorist. So having spent all of this time hearing myself tell stories, being present when other people are telling stories, thinking about why they matter, I think in its most basic way, stories matter because they are how we make sense of what we experience in our lives. When we put experience into words, we are crafting the meaning of those experiences. We're responding to an inherent sense of meaning, but we're also 
building it and we're building it not just for the people to whom we are speaking, but we're building it for ourselves. Yeah. I was just going to say, think of the importance of that. You realize the importance of that tool, the power behind that, because that's your self-perception. That's the way you're seeing life. That's the way you're presenting yourself to other people. That creates your entire reality with those stories. Absolutely. And it's it's both reflecting and creating in the same moment. If an experience has happened and you're looking back on it, we have that sense of temporal displacement, but it's in the telling that we do so much of the processing. How do I put this together? What do I call this? What kind of terms do I use? And so much of that is dependent on us as individuals, but a huge part of that is dependent on our shared understandings with other people since when we narrate our stories, we're almost always doing it with a sense of an audience in mind. It might be an imagined audience, it might be an invisible audience, it might be a future audience, even if we're just writing in a journal or a diary to ourselves, but we're doing it with this sense of crafting our being. And when we hear other people's stories, we're sharing in that process of meaning making. Just to, to clarify, though, I know that your listeners know this. When I'm talking about stories, I'm talking about really casual stories, personal experience narratives, the, the everyday narrating that we do as opposed to formal or performed or rehearsed or you know, right. revised storytelling. Just give an example of an everyday. An everyday storytelling situation would be where you come home at the end of the day and describe to your family members or friends what happened to you that day, the things we choose to tell, the things we choose not to tell. When you're at a gathering or a party or a dinner and someone is telling a story of why they're wearing a cast on their leg, suddenly everyone at the table sort of explodes with broken bone stories or accident stories or someone that they knew who had a similar injury and how it had happened. And that's, we, we can see we're making sense of injury, of recovery, of healing, of, of pain, all of that is going on just in these super simple stories. Now you don't sit at home practicing that story. You didn't write it out in essay form and you know take it to an editor before you brought it to other people. It's just an off the cuff way of engaging with people. Indeed it is. And as we sit in casual conversation sharing stories, we are plugging into the conversational domino train we discussed in episode 14 and co-creating meaning with those we are sharing with. Lynn shares her thoughts on this. I think that that actually, on a very basic level, ties back into what we were just saying about the idea that these kinds of stories, these casual everyday stories, aren't rehearsed or formalized or institutionalized at all because what that does is it leaves room for the stories to be communally shaped so that it's not just the act of an individual person creating a story there's there's cultural expectation but there's also immediate feedback when we narrate stories to other people so I can tell a story that I've told 100 times but I will tell it uniquely to a new person in a new situation based on their questions, their reactions, their expectations, and even really subtle stuff like their facial expressions, their level of attentiveness, their my perception of their interest in my story adjusts all of this. And we can have that on a, a one-to-one scale or we can have that on a one-to-a-thousand scale on a community level, on a cultural level. And when we think of that mutual shaping, that this isn't just a private endeavor, that storytelling combines people's interests and ideologies and values and beliefs, we can see that 
culture has a role in shaping anything that anything that we say, anything that we narrate. It's important to note, I think, that different cultures value stories and different kinds of stories differently. I mean, we use the word stories as sort of a catch-all for a lot of things, for these sort of personal narrations that we've been talking about, but also for traditional stories, fairy tales, legends, myths, fables, tall tales, um, narrative songs, narrative jokes, all these other types of stories. And different cultures emphasize different things. So we really can't speak of stories too much as a monolith or, or as an enormous universal. We can look at the universal level in the sense that every culture ever has valued stories. But then when we start getting into the details, we look at different ways of doing that. Who gets to tell stories? What is worth telling a story about? When do you tell sacred stories? When do you tell secular stories? When do you tell fictional stories? When do you tell true stories? All of these sorts of things come into play and all of those sorts of things are, are dictated by shared perspectives, by shared senses of norms and patterns and, and expectations and things like that. So, okay, so why, why do my listeners care about that? Well, I think we care on a lot of levels. We care because one, that cultural shaping process is happening to us on a regular basis. And we, we don't think about it. It's a behind the scenes sort of processing. But again, it goes back to simple, basic things like someone tuning out when your story's getting really boring. Kids learn that one really quick, which is fun to watch kids try and hold your interest or each other's interest as they learn what's worth narrating, what makes an interesting story in our culture. But it's also how we process the stuff that happens around us. I mean, we tell stories about ourselves, we tell stories about each other, but we also tell stories about politicians and heroes and movie stars and strangers and people we've heard of that we don't know. We pass along stories that are, that are interesting to us. And on a very subtle background level, those stories are being shaped by shared expectations. I bring my own individual nuance to it, but that's not the entirety of the story. It's, it's not my version alone. It's, it's other people's versions. It's shared versions that shape these things. So when we communicate through narration, we can't turn off that broad level of influence that our culture has. And neither can other people. This is sort of a nice dual perspective. As a folklorist, I would say there's the emic perspective, my insider perspective, and the edict perspective, an outside point of view. If I'm looking at another culture of which I'm not a member from the outside, I need to remember that they have all that cultural nuanced shaping going on with their stories as well. I can't just say, I can't look at one single text and say this sums up this other culture for me. I need to know that that their culture is just as multivocal and nuanced and discursive as my own. What's an example of that? An example of that. I would say, and this is me speaking as a Californian in Utah and in Utah for a long time, I would say a good example of that is stories that I hear, um, faith-promoting stories from LDS friends who have amazing stories that I would classify as legends um, because they're told as true stories. Um, about their own faith. And it's easy for me to simplify a story that someone tells from the outside and go, oh, this is obviously doing this. This is obviously serving this purpose in this culture. And that's not necessarily true to someone on the inside. There's going to be so much more nuance to someone who's an inside member to that culture. They're going to see the differences in how different people with their own different individual perspectives come at that communal story. But I, as an outsider, tend to see it as a little bit more unified a little bit more straightforward and and miss a lot of that nuance and i think that that can happen in reverse too we, it can happen from inside or outside any particular culture mm -hmm.
This critical concept allows for an important space of accepting the other. The other simply being people who are different from us, like people with other belief systems, people from different parts of town, people from different countries. This allows for space of accepting that we don't and can't understand them without listening to their stories and getting an inside track before passing judgment and feeling like you know what's right or acceptable for someone else. Let me ask you this question, just because I'm interested in your answer. When a person's story, they, they have all of those things I just mentioned, so they have all the expectations built up into that, you know, their familial expectations, their what their religion expects of them, what their, you know, the way they've seen gender described and the expectations of gender, all of those things that build in what their story is supposed to look like. And then when their story or their life doesn't end up turning out the way they expected, how have you noticed or, I don't know, what comments would you have on how people deal with, deal with that, with coming to grips with their own story when it doesn't fit into the norms that the culture tells them it should? That is such an awesome question because I think there are sort of two routes you can take. And, you know, one is we are told, like you just said, all of those things, all those expectations, the way that a life narrative looks. We are taught that from the day we're born in a variety of different cultures and forms and with a variety of different elements. And when our story doesn't match that expected narrative, we either have to forge our own path or we have to find new models. We have to look at other people's stories so we can broaden our view and say, okay, my story doesn't match that of the people around me, but there are other people in the world whose stories might give me hints for how I can reshape my own experience. So rather than simply being a failure at being this one thing, I might be a success at being something else, at, at fitting a different model, at taking another path. And I think even when we're not doing a bad job, even when we're not failing at being one particular model, there might be all these other options for, for looking at our experience, for narrating it, for shaping ourselves that might just be more fun or more enjoyable or more applicable or more beneficial to us. And we're not going to know about those unless we're listening to a really broad range of people's stories. That's how we find out what our options are. We think, you know, our perceptions, all of these things that we've been fed by our culture growing up, we've been inundated that there is, you know, a correct way to be, a correct way to live. You know, I mean, we have parameters that we have just known from the very beginning. And yet, when you get to a point that you can accept, oh, these parameters are created by other people, you know, that they, they can actually be fluid, they can be changed. Yep. And this concept of, oh, I can listen to other stories. I can look at other cultures. I can look at other neighborhoods. I can look at other people's ways of doing things in order to have more information with which to craft my own story. And I've been calling this reframing, right? You, you get to reframe things that aren't working for you. When your culture tells you that the way that you do things, that the way your life has played out, it somehow affects your self-perception in a negative way, that's not empowering, you know, that that's crushing. And so looking, I, I love how you said, looking to other people's stories to see what other kinds of beautiful interpretive options are out there for life, that's empowering because then you can reframe. Absolutely, you can reframe and it, 
and you can reframe with things that are valid. And I think that's, I mean, there, there's a lot of people who I think construct self-narratives out of a sense of accepting a non-validity, which I think could probably be empowering at sometimes, but also seeing, I, I have often said that in order to be a folklorist on some level, you have to be a relativist. And in some ways, not in huge, you know, enormous moral ways, but there can't just be one right way of living if you're a folklorist. There have to be multiple options out there because reality shows us that. Reality shows us that there are so many right ways to live a life, which is really an empowering idea in just the way that you've been describing. And if those lives are shared and formed and communicated through story, then it's through stories that we are actually able to learn about all these other valid ways of being that I could similarly construct my life that way. I, I think of people I've known who have felt sort of directionless professionally. You know, people who are in, I had a good friend who was in a work from home position and he didn't feel like he was doing something really especially beneficial or life-changing or anything like that. And I watched him go through the process when he would talk to other people about what he did of shifting his sort of melancholy view of it to really highlighting the positive things like I get to wake up when I want, I get to go to work in my PJs, I get to like take a walk in the middle of the day and have this relaxing schedule. And it wasn't the professional life he wanted forever but he had seen other people pitch their their experiences in these more positive ways. And he was like, hey, I have that. Why am I so down on everything? You know, I may not have the ideal job, but there are perks. I don't have to wear a suit and be in the office at 7 a.m. I should be, when people ask about my life, I should be telling them that, these, these good things. And it took, it takes seeing models. I mean, we talk about that. I work in an English department. That's where the folklore program is housed at USU. And when we teach writing to students, we tell them, look at models. There is no reason that every person has to reinvent the wheel, whether it comes to writing an essay or telling their own personal life story. We have all these models around us that can show us ways of doing all of this stuff. And it would be silly not to take advantage of that. It would be silly not to listen as much as possible to the people around us. So my takeaway here as we just close up is kind of stories are models. Like we, we have the great opportunity of listening to other stories to inform us, right? And realizing the power of listening, listening and, and considering, right? That we get to learn from each other when we can't see our way past our own stories and we can acknowledge that those stories hold value, hold option, hold opportunity, even for us. Absolutely. And I think it goes back to that. The nature of story is not just to reflect and describe experience, but also to create it. Something has happened to us in life, whether it's mundane or whether it's extraordinary, things happen to us. And then it is up to us to decide what those things are going to be, mm. how they are going to be described and shared and communicated symbolically to other people. What will that moment become to us? That's, that's in our hands a lot of times to, to do that. And storytelling gives us that power to remake the world as we want it. I love that. I love that. That is a great ending note here because that, that's the empowerment, right? That yeah. is the power of 
creating our perception of events it, and we can use our stories to do that because our stories define us not only to other people but to ourselves mm -hmm. right and we can define those events according to how we craft the stories around it and when we're talking about crafting i always want to drive home the point this isn't about making up you know fairy tales about ourselves that didn't happen or creating lies it's exactly. just the fluidity of story and the ability to choose your own perspective of it Yes, exactly. This is this is not fiction. This isn't fabrication. This is simply knowing that culture and individual personality and all of those things go into any situation where we are putting experience into words. And when we are consciously aware that we're doing that and that others are doing that, we can make it a more useful, beneficial, empowering experience. When I talked to Lynn about reframing or choosing perspective on a space in her life. Here she shares with us part of her life where she purposefully chose a perspective. It allowed her to create a successful narrative over a narrative of disappointment and struggle. And this is one of the key ideas that I have been discussing and hoping to drive home, that control that we have over the perspective in any given situation. So I love that she shared this example. Just professionally, I know that, you know, I graduated with my PhD and the correct thing to do, that's in quotes, would have been to immediately begin applying to every job to which I'm qualified and take whatever position I could get at whatever institution I could get for the sake of becoming an assistant professor and continuing on the tenure track. And instead, through a variety of twists and turns, I ended up in an adjunct position, which is of course where we met, at Utah State University, where I know that by many measurements, I was not technically, professionally succeeding. I certainly wasn't failing, I was gainfully employed. But the way I chose to look at that was, any of the other positions I might have gotten, positions that, that friends and colleagues of mine were getting, would not have been as a folklorist. It would have been maybe in an English department or an anthropology department. And I just felt so lucky that I was teaching folklore, having amazing grad students like you, getting to work with these students, you know, be on their thesis committees, teach grad and undergrad courses, online and offline courses. And I just kept looking around going, you know, I could choose to be disappointed by the fact that this is a, a temporary position or a contract position, but it was almost impossible. It was like, I'm a folklorist. I get to be in this place with this amazing folklore archive and these amazing colleagues and these amazing students. She chose her narrative on purpose. But I was very aware of this alternate narrative I could have been telling all along that I could, if I wanted to, I could wallow and I could point out a hundred ways that things weren't going my way and that it wasn't working out. And I just, I never actually felt the need to, to use that narrative because it never quite fit what was actually happening. The thing that I have found most of my students over time, not just being responsive to, but carrying on with, even long after folklore classes have ended, you know, my undergrads who are not folklore majors, who go off and do other things, the thing that I hear that sticks with them is to really make an effort to maintain that double vision that, that folklore studies gives you. That once you start looking at this on the ground, everyday level of cultural expressive communication, you almost can't turn it off. You start seeing folklore everywhere. Someone starts telling you a story that previously you would have just listened to and responded and kept on going. There's that extra little tick in your brain that goes, oh, 
look, they're doing it. They're telling me a story. They're putting their experience into narrative expression and they're doing it consciously and, and purposefully and choosing words and I'm shaping it too by being here and listening. And once you get practice at that level of awareness, it just enriches so much of your interactions, your time, your experiences. So that's what I encourage is be actively aware of personal narrative in your life. We are always talking about using story on purpose, being actively aware of the stories going on around us, using it to create our own experience, like like Lynn did with her perspective switch, you know, using it to define ourselves on purpose, using it to create community, to understand communities as we create meaning. The challenge for this week is to notice how your stories are creating meaning in your life and also how you are in discussion with others creating community stories from joining your experiences with their experiences. Pay attention because it gets really interesting when you start seeing these things going on and understanding how you're co-creating meaning with those around you as you tell your stories. Have fun out there this week telling your stories and collecting stories from all the interesting people you get to exchange with on a daily basis. And as always, please go to our website, www.loveyourstorypodcast, and subscribe to the weekly inspiration and challenge, and pass on a link to this podcast to one of your friends. Just do it. We'll see you next week.